That massive ice storm, I think, did us in a bit. You should, attendance first service was, like we didn't even make it through the first song and communion was over. <laughs> but we sang the second song because music and worship is not about filling time or covering communion. <laughs> but it actually has content and purpose. So if you're in second service and we end up ahead of time, we'll still sing the second song anyway. So... <laughs> I always love that when, you know, the, the service runs over and the minister decides to uh, cut the last hymn or the last verses of a hymn, which saves about two minutes. And so it doesn't really um, necessarily do anything. Thankfully, that's never been an issue here, so we just run over. It's not that we don't run over, we just let it, let it be and just run over. Well, thank you for being here again or for the first time. I uh, wanted to uh, give a quick review of last week, uh, just to kind of set some context for this week. Uh, but before we do, let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for this, your day. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather in worship that you have called us together. And we thank you for this opportunity to learn, to understand more fully uh, what it is that you've been doing in the midst of your people, in your church, throughout the generations. Pray that you would give us greater understanding. Uh, I pray that it would make a difference in how we view and how we consider what it is that we do on a week-to-week basis. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have a little bit of a review there in the sheet before you. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about uh, music training affections. Also, if you missed last week, the audio is online. And so uh, it's, on the, it's on the front page of the website. And so if this review is too quick for you, <laughs> uh, you can go and, uh, and actually hear the entire discussion from last week. Uh, we talked about the fact that music was connected to the cosmic order and to harmony, that there is an orderliness to that, that it reflects who God is, that creation uh, shows forth his handiwork, And uh, as Romans um, 1 mentions, that he has revealed himself and the things that he has made. We also talked about the fact that in early worship, there was an emphasis on the word. um, And that there were temple and synagogue influences in the the worship and music of the early church. And we also talked about the several different types of songs and responses uh, that are indicated in scripture from canticles to short responses to longer responses to the doxological responses, et cetera, those things which are, seem to be inherent, especially within the, um, the, the epistles, um, not, in addition to psalm singing as well. So it's, I think it's important to understand, you know, as we talk about issues of music, especially in the context of the early church, um, the different perspective and the different emphasis we tend to uh, view things within our own grid, within our own understanding, of course. I mean, that's, that's our experience. That's what we know. But sometimes when we get in and talk about, um, talk about subjects from different centuries, we need to understand a little bit more about where they're coming from. Um, let me give you a visual example. Um, can you, medieval art. You know, if you see a piece of medieval art and you see Mary, uh, perhaps uh, Mary holding a little person. Um, it's, you know it's Jesus, but he looks like a little man. Um, and it looks like she's sitting on top of a building. 
Um, and we go, you know, okay, you know, we, we know it's Mary and Jesus, but, you know, they really didn't understand perspective very well. No, that's not really what's going on. You know, what, what it is, it's a visual representation of the fact that Christ as an infant is also God. Um, there's, there's a combination there of being the son of God, but also a baby. So he's small because he's an infant, but he looks human, you know, full, like a man, little man, um, because it represents theologically that understanding. And so things of importance uh, gain greater dimension. So uh, the building is not nearly as important as Mary and Jesus. And so this depiction of, of Mary and Christ. And so the fact that she's sitting on a building does not mean that you know she's a giantess, um, but the fact that the, the importance um, is given to various aspects of, of, um, of the intent of, of the painting itself. Let me give you another example, too. Um, the idea of um, heliocentric or geocentric view of the universe. Um, does the Earth revolve around the sun, or does the sun revolve around the Earth? Um, and we all know that the correct answer is that the sun revolves around the Earth. Right? Yes, and here's why. <laughs> because the earth is the place, the habitation that God created for his image bearers. And the moon and the sun and the planets that he created were created in such a way to serve, to protect, and to be a part of the universe, the solar system in which God has created so therefore, from a theological, philosophical perspective, Earth is most important. Now, yes, I know scientifically that you know, the correct answer is that the Earth revolves around the sun. Um, but just because it does that does not mean that in terms of the hierarchy, the importance of that is that the sun serves the Earth, not the other way around. So the sun is not the middle of the, of the solar system, but the Earth is. And the planets that God has created, he did in such a way to protect Earth, to protect them from uh, meteorites, to protect it in terms of its orbit, to keep it in its gravitational pull. That all those things are in place in such a way to make life possible for his image bearers here on Earth. Now, that's a different perspective, right? Um, and so when you read things in uh, medieval literature or in Renaissance literature or you see paintings and so forth, you need to begin to interpret that from the understanding from the philosophical, theological perspective in which they're coming from and not necessarily our own understanding. Which also means that it gives us a different perspective with regards to uh, earlier learning and understanding as being um, um, is insufficient in some sort of way, when in fact they have, and sometimes more things right than we would recognize. For example, um, <laughs> it's getting off on several interesting tangents. Um, the idea of the bodily humors, you know, that the, the four bodily humors have to be in balance with one another for there to be good health. If you've seen a Jane Austen movie and someone is sick with a cold and they, you know, bleed her so that you know the the the, the balance of liquids, you know, is such. That idea is, of course, that's, you know, that, that's, not how, that's not how the body works, excess of bile and phlegm and blood, um, except that is how the body works, in that the body is a very complex system that has to be in balance. And so the concept is correct, even if the details are wrong. 
Um, and so when we look at the ideas of, of music in the early church and the context in which they're writing, that's some of the perspective that we need to bring to it. Um, what were they thinking about? What were they writing about? How does this fit within the idea of a musical universe? So the first thing I want to talk about is the development of musical thought. Uh, the first person you have there is Augustine. Now, remember, in um, 313, the Edict of Milan, Constantine has made Christianity legal. And then call, he called together in 325 the, uh, the uh, Council of Nicaea. And so the difference then between the, the home church movement and the underground aspect of the church, then being officially recognized, um, being able to worship more openly, transformed then the content and context of development of, of music and worship. So with Augustine, who lived between 354 and 430, uh, one of his books that he wrote, De Musica, is six, six books on music. Um, had a profound influence on translating the ideas of musical thought from a biblical perspective. Uh, you see there some of his, some of his content, uh, concepts there. Um, numerous citas, the, the quality that good poetry and good music exhibit by which the hearer may perceive that they are in agreement with universal truth that is, cosmic harmony. And numeri, the various means or faculties by which humans are enabled to comprehend cosmic harmony. Recognize there where the emphasis is. You know, a, a person's ability or developed ability was to be able to recognize that which was already there. Those things which were beautiful, those things which connected to cosmic harmony. Um, that music and poetry itself have a quality to them that make them good because they exhibit um, universal truth, the cosmic aspects. And our, our learning is why we are educated, the pro process is to be able to discern those inherent qualities um, that the music or the poetry has as it reflects the cosmic order. Quentin Faulkner in his book, Wiser Than Despair says, Augustine clearly considers music a science and an important one he holds that music is an expression of the formative power of number that underlies and orders all creation. Music for him is a matter of mathematical law and order in perfect harmony with all other facets of organized existence and subject to the same fundamental rules. God created harmony and consonances. Consonances, this is what Augustine's thinking leads to. Earthly music can become an image of the heavenly music. It reflects those things that God has made. The best music, the music that works the best, are those that are reflective of the created order because God created his creation to work in the best manner. The next development of musical thought is Brethius, uh, 477 to 524. He also wrote a book on music. He's primarily known for his book on the consolation of philosophy. Uh, he served the emperor but was later imprisoned and executed. Um, Roman senator, consul, philosopher. Um, Constellation of Philosophy was one of the most popular and influential books of the Middle Ages. He also translated the, translated the works of Aristotle. And so once again, bringing those ideas of learning into the context of a biblical foundation. But he also wrote the book, um, The Principles of Music, or De Institutione Musica. It provided the biblical connection between Greek education and the Christian practice, uh, the source of all beauty and order is God. 
Uh, music is beautiful to the degree that it reflects universal perfection. Remember we talked last week about the fact that beauty is an attribute of God, and it's inherent and displayed in the things that he has made. And so the, the aim of, of a composer or to write music would be to reflect those things which are reflective of the character of God. If that's what you believe in terms of how music works, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, if, if God has is, is is revealed himself in the order and the beauty of what he has made and beauty can reflect that, then of course the aim would be to move into that, to do the same thing, to be reflective of the same things. Boethius is the one who uh, clarified, he, he didn't so much create things, ideas, as much as um, clarified them and made them more popular. But the idea of the music of the spheres, musica mundana, um, the cosmic aspect of that. There was this thought that, um, that you know, as, as things move, they create sound. And so the proportion and the relationship between the planets uh, created some sort of cosmic harmony, whether that was heard or understood or, or just theoretical, uh, but that God created the, uh, the proportions in such a way that there was a musical quality to that. Uh, the second aspect was musica instrumentalis, or heard music, uh, that music that we play. And that hits us at the ethical level, because when we play music, we play music together often. Either, you know, either you're listening or you're playing it for someone else or you're playing together. So there's very much that aspect of relationship. And the musica humana, the music of the soul, uh, the psychic element, the personal, the, the soulish element. I can't remember if we mentioned this last week, but um, if we didn't, now's a good time. The, the idea of harmony is the idea of shalom, of peace, the biblical idea of the rightness of all things. And so if things aren't working correctly, if they're not in proper order, then they, there is discord. If they do work properly, then there is concord, there's harmoniousness. I think, for example, if your car is running rough, you take it to the shop for a tune-up, a musical term. You know, you're getting your car retuned. You know, <clears throat> you're bringing harmony back again to the balance of the parts of things. Um, if your washing machine is shaking when it's when it's washing, something's wrong. You know, you know that there's something has to be realigned so that um, that there there's harmony there. So the, the idea gets to the heart of from from the theological standpoint that with when sin came into the garden, it caused discord. There's a broken relationship with God. And that needs to be restored. And Christ restores that through the peace, through the shalom that he brings through the blood of the cross. And he's restoring all things and restoring the cosmic order as well. And so there's that whole line of, of bringing, bringing order together. Now that's from, the, from the, the individual part. You know, the psalmist says again and again things like, um, um, you know, I praise you with my whole heart, not half my heart, not a part of my heart. Um, but the entirety of who I am. Um, you know, unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, there's unitedness there. There's a peace there, a wholeness there um, that brings, that leads to shalom, leads to concord. Um, in re within relationships, 
you've all been in relationships, whether within your family, whether in, within work environments, et cetera, in which there is brokenness, right? <laughs> there, is not, there is not peace there. There is not concord. Um, when things are working the way they should, there is peace there. Things work better. They work more smoothly, right? Um, that's an aspect of bringing harmony, of bringing peace. That's the ethical quality, uh, musical instrumentalist, the ethical quality of working together in, uh, in making peace, and which is reflective of the cosmic level. So the, what this boils down to is, you know, along this line of thought, you're either bringing concord or discord. You know, you're either sowing discord or you're bringing peace. Or working towards those things, and so that's that's the philosophical, theological background, a foundation on which some of these musical ideas then continue to be developed. That the music that is being made, that is being sung, that is being created, um, has the opportunity to bring peace, to strive towards peace, to strive towards harmoniousness, which is far different than. Is this pretty? Or I like this song. Um, it has a greater weight to it, especially within the context of this, this piece of music needs to carry forth this content, which is weighty. And so the scriptural theological content has to uh, match then the vehicle by which it is brought forward. So then with regards to development of, of musical practice, uh, we talked a bit last week about the idea of, of chant um, coming out of the history of the synagogue. But there were several different types of chant that developed in several different areas. Uh, for example, there's Byzantine chant, uh, which, which came from the East. Ambrosian chant, uh, or Milanese chant, that came from Milan, uh, which is where um, Ambrose of Milan was. There's the Old Roman chant. Uh, there's Gallican chant. There's Celtic chant. Uh, Visigothic chant. There's Sarum chant from Salisbury, which is still a very distinct tradition uh, of, of chant from the, uh, from the Salisbury area. So there's all these different traditions that then sprang up in various places throughout where Christendom spread. They were based on a system of eight modes uh, which is as opposed to our use of just major and minor. So, for example, there is you know, eight differentiations of, of uh, ways to talk about things. So we talk about major and minor. We often say things like um, major is happy and minor is sad. Um, I'll debate you on that, but not now. Um, but we kind of simplify it to, to, two, to two of those modes. Um, within the context of composition and, and singing at this time, there was at least six other expressions of, of connections to notes, of the relationship of notes. So there were subtle variations on, on what those sounded like. Um, and that there's, you know, Dorian, Lydian, Mixolydian, um, Phrygian, etc. Um, and there, there's a different relationship of how those notes were then used, different contexts. So even when, a, even when an ancient author talks about different types of music or different modes or different scales, um, we don't necessarily have the same um, a mentality of being able to how to think about that. Um, the other thing too, um, I'll try not to make this technical. 
but because of developments of what happened with, uh, with regards to keyboard instruments, et cetera, especially during the Baroque period, um, what came about was called equal tuning, um, which means essentially that a, uh, a piano is slightly out of tune. The relationship between notes are always slightly out of tune, uh, as opposed to pure tuning. That makes a difference we'll talk about some, some of this more next week, specifically how this makes a difference, that makes a difference with regards to the natural resonance of notes. Uh, because if you have natural tuning, then notes upon note, notes create additional sounding notes. There, there's a depth there and a warmth and, a, and an added element to what is being sung or played that you don't have when everything is slightly out of tune. Um, but we just... We've just kind of grown to live with that, but we're also missing out on some of the richness of when they're talking about music, what, the, what they would have heard or what they would have been talking about. So in, in terms of the development of musical practice, the first person we need to talk about is Ambrose of Milan, uh, Bishop of Milan, known as the father of church music. He lived between about 340 to 397. He started out as a governor um, the, uh, the main uh, government of Rome had been moved to Milan. And so the fact that he was governor of Milan put him in the middle of the court and, uh, and with, with um, good connections. The former bishop had died, and um, there was a bit of a ruckus about who the next bishop should be. There was some fighting between the Arians um, and the, the rest of the church as to which direction Theologically, the church in Milan was going to go, and as Milan went, so went would go the the empire. And so there was some there was some heavy discussion and loud discussion. At which point, the governor stepped in, um, Ambrose, and said, you know, brought about spoke and brought about some peace to the situation. And as legend goes, a, a young voice cried out, you know, Ambrose for bishop. And everyone went, sure, we all like him. So Ambrose for bishop. Um, he wasn't even baptized yet, um, and <laughs> was not was not a full catechumen. So he went through a crash course of uh, of you know church membership, and uh, went through catechumen and baptized, and then became became bishop of Milan somewhat reluctantly. But at the same time, he tried to run away. There's several stories in the early church of people trying to uh, to say that not me. This is not me, um, but they kept pulling him back because they knew that he was a person who could bring about peace and and would would stand stalwartly for truth, and in fact he did. Um, the uh, uh, mother of the emperor was an Arian, and she brought in her own bishops and her own churchmen, and they were trying to take over the church buildings in Milan, and it got to the extent uh, that at one point he was barricaded. With, um, with church members within one of the cathedrals in Milan while the forces outside were waiting to arrest him. And uh, during, this, during this standoff is when he, at least reputed, uh, reportedly, uh, taught the, the people their responsive psalmody and also introduced the idea of, of hymn singing, which was more prevalent in the western part of the empire, um, the, the Greek aspect. So he brought the eastern ideas of, of hymn singing and... Um, and of, of, of antiphonal chant. Um, he wrote several hymns that, we, that are still in use. 
For example, O um, Splendor of God's Glory Bright, which we're singing during this season of Epiphany, is one of his texts. Um, and he also began to codify the idea of Milanese chant to begin to, um, to bring to bear particular times and seasons in which you sing particular pieces. Uh, and the next person, we, well, the, oh, of course, the other great legend about Ambrose is, you know, Augustine was converted under his ministry. And uh, um, the, the story goes, unsubstantiated, but it's still a great story, that when he was baptized, when, when Ambrose baptized Augustine, as they came up out of the water, uh, they began to spontaneously compose the, the Te Deum, um, praise thee, O God, back and forth, verse by verse. And that's the origin, um, at least in... in, in um, lore of the, of the Te Deum. So when Augustine is talking about music as well, um, in confessions, etc., he's talking about the practice, and he, he mentions this specifically, he's talking about the practice of song in, um, in the church at Milan under, under Ambrose. With Gregory the Great, uh, Pope from 590, uh, died in 604, we have the father of chant. Um, he reformed the, ch the liturgy and the chant and, um, and kind of beefed up the Schola Cantorum, the school for teaching cantors, those who would then go out and, uh, and lead the singing in various, um, in various churches and, and cathedrals throughout the empire. So he, these, all, these, all these different types of chant I mentioned before, Byzantine, uh, Visigothic, Serum, etc. Uh, there are all these different types of melody, about 650 um, began to be codified and utilized for specific instances. So he took the elements of those. Uh, he made certain chants for certain days of the year. So this is more of a, more of a clerical job um, than necessarily a musical job. You know, the, the picture on the front is the depiction of, um, of Gregory. Uh, legend goes that it's the Holy Spirit, you'll see the dove there whispering in his ear, um, the Holy Spirit whispering to him various melodies as he wrote the chant. There's not much evidence or any that he actually wrote chant uh, as much as he um, kind of brought it together and then organized uh, the use of it within the context of the church. So cantors would come from all over and study at the school. Um, they would then go home taking with them what they had learned. Uh, reorganization of the chant actually began before him, but he did the final organization and codification. This is an order that remained unchanged for over a thousand years. And so the work that Gregory did became the backbone, the foundation of how music worked within the context of the church. Now, as I mentioned, um, as I mentioned last time, there was no easy way of notation. There was no notating of music. So exactly what he did, we're not, you know, in terms of the songs themselves, we're not exactly sure what those songs are. Um, what, they, what they essentially did is, is had memory aids. And so if, um, if you'd been to the Schola Cantorum and you had learned all these melodies and you were given a piece, it's like, okay, now what's that melody? Um, there were arrows in... Uh, uh, in, in amongst the words to indicate when the notes went up and when they went down. So if you knew the melody, then you could say, oh yeah, you know, amazing grace, you know, up, 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 down, you know, then you could follow that. But if you'd never heard amazing grace before and you were giving, given arrows, you wouldn't know how far up to go or how far down to go or what the rhythm would be. Um, so those were more memory aids. 
ironically, <laughs> when, um, when music notation came about sometime between the 9th and 11th century, ironically, the, the, the pieces that were notated first were the ones that were least used because those were the ones that they were afraid that were going to disappear more quickly. And the ones that everybody knew, they either notated last or didn't notate at all because everybody knew them. And so what we're left with is the leftovers. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, pieces, the pieces that weren't necessarily as common um, or as used as often, but were the ones that they were, um, were afraid would fall out of, fall out of, of knowledge. Um, why chant? Um, as we, we said some of this last week, chant can aid in the projection of words by singing, you know, elongating syllables and giving emphasis. Uh, you, you have the opportunity of, of traversing more space and being more clearly understood. It's an aid in memorization, which seems ironic, especially if, uh, like we sang last week, uh, when you have two short phrases of music that you repeat again and again, it's like, how does that aid in memorization? Surprisingly well. Um, one of the things when we started New College 10 years ago is um, uh, we, we, there's a daily prayer service. And so I instituted the singing of chant as part of the daily prayer service um, like we did last week. The idea being that there was no, probably no other place that students had the opportunity to use that aspect of their brain. Um, and there was a kind of a learning experience as well and to sing the Psalms seemed to make sense. Um, but the students, somewhat reluctant at first in those early years, um, discovered that they were singing and knowing the words to psalms as they were washing dishes or going about their daily routine. Because even the spoken rhythm of that to, um, to a melodic line, even though it's a repeated melodic line, began to infiltrate their memory and began to help them memorize what it was that they were saying, which was scripture. Um, with regards to music and the liturgy, almost all the codified chants have a background in the Psalms. So the, the Psalms is the foundation and the formation of, of what's being sung. As I said before, there were about 650 melodies in use until about the mid-7th, century. In the 9th century, there was this explosion of new writing. Uh, new forms, new styles appeared. Not sure why. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, what was pretty consistent here for you know, hundreds of years suddenly began to be expanded. That's important, too, from the standpoint of, of, and this is where we'll go even more next week, from the standpoint of what began as um, chanting in response or antiphonal singing within the context of a body of believers began to be much more complicated. Um, you know, if you if you had to know all six hundred, if you had to know six hundred and fifty tunes without having any musical notation in front of you, that's more and more difficult unless you're specifically being educated in that music. Um, also, with regards to as music began to become more and more complicated, it began more and more difficult for the congregation, the average congregation member, to sing, which is why we moved towards more of the use of of choirs, and we'll talk much more about that next week. Uh, but that became more difficult than in terms of the congregation participating in worship and, the, and along those lines. But one of the things, part of this codification that Gregory brought about um, was the daily service of the Mass. Uh, the word Mass comes from missa, which means sent or dismissal. 
go and announce the gospel of the Lord. It's the last words of, of a mass. And so it, it's, it's that, um, that aspect of going out into the world. That's where that comes from. And the, and the mass is divided between um, what's known as the ordinary and the propers. Uh, the ordinary meaning those things which are sung on an ordinary basis. Things like the Kyrie, the Gloria. And then the propers were much more uh, specified to the day. I'll talk about a little bit more about that in, in, the, in a few minutes. All of these things in terms of the development, um, it's, it, I wanted to focus on music. The development of liturgy would be a whole other conversation. Uh, it, it, it interplays here, but that's a whole other, you know, a whole other place to go. Um, but all of these things are, are things, you see, you see vestiges of these in the early church. And as it began to be more developed and more codified, especially as post-Constantine, um, worship became much more public. They were taking what was already done and making it more formalized. And that's, um, so that's kind of where the origin of this comes in. So it's kind of a development of, of uh, ideas and of usage over time. So the, the ordinary of the Mass, you see there the Kyrie, uh, Lord have mercy, which comes from Luke, Luke 18. The Gloria, which comes from uh, Luke 2, the Song of the Angels, which is also modeled after the Psalms. The Credo, which is the Nicene Creed. The Sanctus of Benedictus from Isaiah 6 and from Matthew 21. Uh, and the Anus Dei, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So Lord have mercy, uh, Lamb of God, Glory to God in the highest. Um, those those aspects of things. Um, those those are the ordinaries of the mass, and so you would those texts would be consistent within worship. And then the propers of the mass would be those things which are differentiated depending upon the liturgical day. So, for example, you know, I mean, we do this with the introit. We're singing "O Splendor of God's Glory Bright" as the introit for worship because this is the season of light. In the darkness, it's the fact that Christ has come to a light to all mankind. It's a fulfillment of the prophecies of Abraham that he is a light to all the nations. Uh, that the gift of Christ is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And so that aspect of light, of the gospel going forth, is is kind of the prevalent theme during this season of Epiphany. Um, and so our introit that we're singing uh, during this season, you'll see in the bulletin, is O Splendor of God's Glory Bright, um, O Thou That Bringest Light from Light. So that, that ties in to the particular season of the year. Um, but that's a, you know, typically a psalm. That's a processional psalm entering into the service. Uh, the gradual was a responsive psalm between the epistle and the gospel. And the Alleluia, or the tract, was a song of joy or, or penitence. The offertory was the psalm sung during the offering of the Eucharist. Now, it's very interesting. Um, we think of offering in terms of passing the plate, um, which we don't even do at Cornerstone. But the, the idea of, of offering in that regard. In the early church, the offering was the bringing forward of the elements of communion. So people would, would bring, bring with them bread, wine, uh, honey, milk, water, etc., and bring those things um, forward as part of the meal, as part of the celebration of communion. And so it's the offering of those things and bringing those forward, which is, the, which is where the idea of the offering comes from. Uh, that was then became translated as, instead of you know, bringing your produce, 
bring money. I mean, we, in terms of that being the uh, representation of that or the substitution of that. And then communion is a psalm that was sung during or after the Eucharist. <clears throat> so you see that, that all of these have at least, they're either a psalm directly or they're derived from a psalm. And so what these do between the ordinary and the propers is you've got the, the singing of scripture sprinkled throughout the context of, of the service. In addition, in terms of, of, of um, liturgy, there's also the divine hours, which were the eight prayer services that were done daily, especially within the context of, of monasteries. The entire Psalter is sung every week, if you follow the rule of St. Benedict um, strictly. Um, some monasteries now sing the Psalter every two weeks. That's still a lot. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of psalms. Um, but the idea of the marking of the hours of the day, and you see that again and again in Scripture, especially in the psalms, you know, the watches of the night, um, or in Acts chapter 2 talks about the fact that the early believers were faithful to the prayers, um, that idea of the, the prayer hours throughout the, the context of the day. So part of the codification of this was choosing and putting together the, the music for particular days. Uh, the, the, the way in which that would flow within the, the context of the divine hours or within the context of, of the, daily, um, the, the daily service, the daily mass. So the codification then brought all these disparate ideas um, into a form which could then be duplicated and sent forth. So people would come and study at the Schola Cantorum, learn these things, and then take that with them. Um, also, at this time, there was a there was a tension between um, knowledge, uh, study, education versus um, not a, much of an emphasis. Interestingly enough, Gregory was on the uh, um, the not so interested in education side of things, um, even though he missionary efforts in um, in um, Kent, in England, and so forth, and reforms for mercy ministries, etc. Um, so this is where the Irish come in, too. Um, when the Irish come from Ireland and start planting places of, 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 um, of you know, monasteries and churches, that's where we see strong areas of, of, of um, interest in scholasticism and education uh, of learning. And so these, thing, these two, backwards on the map, these two influences then coming from north to south, from south to north, then kind of co-mingle within uh, the context of, of Europe to provide these centers for learning, uh, but also bringing uh, the learning and the codification of the ideas from the Roman church uh, within the context of the Celtic church and these other traditions to bring all these to bear within the, uh, the um, gathering of the church as a whole. So with a couple minutes we have left, <laughs> um, on the back, You have a couple examples here. The first one is a Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. So the first, the first phrase there would be sung by a cantor and then repeated, and then sung and then repeated, and then sung and then repeated, and then move on to the next phrase. <clears throat> so the words are um, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. So I'll sing and then you repeat for me. Kyrie song. 
See how that would then call and response and then move on from there. Um, you'll notice also that the notes are square. Uh, we'll talk more about that. <laughs> um, and they have little different shapes and little figures around them. Um, we'll talk as we get to notation next week, we'll talk a little bit more about those ideas. The next one down you have is um, uh, Creator of the Stars of Night, which is um, a hymn by Ambrose. Um, to a chant tune as well. Creator of the stars of night. Uh, you may have heard this at some point in time. The choir actually sang a version of this um, a couple times in past years. Um, but you see how that's notated out and how that would then be, there's several verses to this, um, but that's how that would look and then how that would then be sung. And then the last one that says tone two um, with regards to the eight modes, there are also psalm tones as well. And so different psalms would be sung to different psalm tones. Um, there's a, you see some of this kind of carry on. I have a Scottish Psalter that um, has, I should have brought it with me. The, um, it's, a, it's a little book, but the bottom two thirds of the page are disconnected from the top page. So they're like the top third of the page is all these tunes and the bottom two-thirds of the page are text. And so you mix and match the text to different tunes. Um, the same idea that you've got these, uh, there's a lot more tunes though than the, uh, than the psalm tones. But you've got, you've got particular psalm tones that are used then with particular psalms, and so you kind of mix and match those particular tunes to particular psalms. Um, we sang last week the antiphon. We are his, you know, people that, that, and then the song, and then we sang, we sang the antiphon. All of that would then end with a Gloria Patri. And so what you have here is this, is the psalm tone to Gloria Patri. So when you sang the second psalm tone, when you got to the end of the psalm, you would then sing the Gloria Patri. Uh, once again, you have the reciting tone. Uh, most of the syllables are there. And then, uh, and then you see where the notes move. We've sung this on Wednesday night, so anybody who's been at Vespers will probably have know this from one point in time or another. But let's just do this quickly. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Notice, too, just even the sound of that doesn't sound like major or minor, what we're used to, because it has a modal aspect to that. Um, we're out of time. Are there any quick questions, though? 
Mm-hmm. No, I mean, in terms of, and we'll talk, like I said, some of the um, um, early aspects of notation, but early notation was not five lines. And so four lines and sometimes you know, a lot more lines as it developed, but yeah. Yes? It gives the um, it gives kind of the home tone, so almost like the key. What's the what's the main what's the main tone there? So that would be one of the modes in terms of of the major and minor. Um, and with with Pythagoras and the early Greeks, you've got the development of how those particular notes came about, and that's a much longer discussion than we have for this moment. Um, but yes, I mean, there's that idea of relationships and building from the octave to the fifth to the fourth as the building block then of figuring out notes was, um, as far as we can tell, um, prominent from you know, 500 um, BC at least. Yes, and that would be the other aspect of that. I mean, it reflects the uh, natural overtone series, yes. Which is also another deep discussion, yeah. <laughs> all right, thank you all. Next week we'll talk about uh, polyphony and uh, the next stage of development of ideas. <laughs>